Afternoon, friends. It is lovely to be with you. Yes, what we're going to do now is we're going to lift our eyes to see Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, seated on the throne of heaven, and there interceding for you. Now, through this conference, we've been our eyes have been lifted to see him in his glory. And I want you to see now how from that maximum point of exaltation there on the throne of heaven, I want you to see how he feels about you. I want you to see how fiercely his heart beats with compassion for you in what you're facing right now. Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4? Dear brother, dear sister, wherever you're at, wherever you are at, hear God's truth. Hebrews 4 verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. My Father, I praise you for your great promise that your power is made perfect in weakness. Use a weak preacher now, I pray, that Jesus might be lifted up. And I pray that through your word, you would show us so clearly how the heart of Christ in heaven beats, that it is revolutionary for lives here today, revolutionary. That the young mum who is so tired she feels flat, that the worship leader who's just been going on but actually been quietly going cold and therefore feels a hypocrite and feels like running away. For each one of us, proud or battered, doubting, weak, would you show us the heart of Christ so that we see we do not have an aloof saviour but one whose compassion reaches out to us where we are. And so I pray, may we not, none of us, none of us here, may we go back to our ministries and feel that was a high point and now I'm back on my own. And I'm too messy. I'm too ordinary for Jesus to feel for me. May they see how differently his heart is and be won back again and again and again in the coming weeks and months. Do that work in our hearts through your word, we pray. In Jesus' sweet and strong name. Amen. About 300 years ago, John Owen said this. It is a fundamental article of the faith that Jesus is in the same body in heaven that he conversed with on earth. Now you can tell that was written a long time ago. No one speaks like that anymore. But it's not just a turn of phrase. Who today speaks of Christ's body in heaven being a fundamental article of the faith? You know, we, we rightly, we hear umpteen sermons on the cross and the resurrection, great. But then it's as if he could have evaporated, right? He died, he rose, he... 
evaporated, <laughs> sort of disappearing into the ether, which is less than comforting if he's our forerunner. That is not what we see in the New Testament. If you look in Luke 24, he doesn't, he doesn't vaporize. He doesn't float off to some realm where he discards his body. If you look, in fact, Luke 24, verse 39, Jesus says, and I want you to remember it's verse 39, because it's important. Luke 24, 39, Jesus says, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. He is the one who 12 verses later, verse 51, is taken up into heaven. It's that one who's taken up into heaven. He never abandons humanity, even at the last minute. It's humanity he came to redeem. He never leaves the temple of his body. He bears humanity back to heaven. So that a man sits in the closest communion with God. That's what he came to do. Now, to understand the ascension and why he went up to heaven, I want to just backtrack a bit so you get it. I want to start in Leviticus 16. This is backtracking a little bit, but we're, we're going to move fast, okay? Leviticus 16. Okay, we're just going to go verse by verse from there, right? <laughs> so Leviticus 16. Now, you remember the story. I just want you to picture it. So imagine you've got the, the tabernacle with the Holy of Holies back there. And then you have the altar. And what would happen once a year, Leviticus 16, you would have the Day of Atonement. And out here, where people could see, you'd have these two goats, right? One is a scapegoat, and it bears the sins of Israel away, right? And the other goat, remember what happens? The other goat is killed where everyone can see it. Out here, in public realm, the goat is killed, sacrificed, and its blood is taken through into the Holy of Holies behind the veil. And this once a year, the high priest goes in behind the veil with the blood. And that brings atonement. Now, what's that to do with the ascension? Well, in Exodus 25, you don't need to turn to this because we're going to move fast through this. Exodus 25, twice in verse 9 and verse 14, the Lord says to Moses as he's constructing the tabernacle, says this, See that you make this tabernacle according to the pattern shown you on the mountain." Right? So everything you're going to see about the law, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, all you're going to see in the Day of Atonement, that is made according, as a copy, according to the pattern shown on the mountain. Right? What you see in the tabernacle is an earthly copy of heavenly reality. Now come with me to Hebrews 8. Okay, we've got to the New Testament now. Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now, the point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy place, in the true tent, that the Lord set up, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it's necessary for this priest to have something to offer. Now, if you were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all. There are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Here we go. This is it. This is it. Verse 5. Those priests in the tabernacle in the temple in Jerusalem serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent... He was instructed by God, Exodus 25, saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. That sets up the argument for the next couple of chapters of, he uh, of Hebrews. Let's walk through it. So, picture the high priest on the Day of Atonement, 
Sacrifice is made out in the public place. He takes the blood through into the throne room of God. And Hebrews comments, Hebrews 9, let's start at verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Do you see what he's saying? That what you saw with the high priest going into the tabernacle in the wilderness or the, the temple in Jerusalem was an earthly copy of what Jesus would do in the ascension. Jesus would be sacrificed for everyone to see in public, on the cross, on earth. But then he would take his blood, the blood of his sacrifice, into the true holy place, heaven itself. Hebrews 9.24 For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. See it? In the ascension, Christ is the true great high priest, taking the actual blood of the definitive true sacrifice to the very throne of God. That's it. That's the fulfillment of the day of atonement. In fact, you to enjoy later if you look at Leviticus 25 you can see the trumpet is blown and the high priest steps out and jubilee is announced because of atonement the trumpet blows and an end to slavery an end to death and even the land is given rest well then Christ our high priest having offered this once-for-all sacrifice, then did what no high priest would dare to do. Hebrews 10, verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For he's not only our great high priest, he's the king. He ascends as a priest king in the order of Melchizedek, who is the priest king. Which is why Psalm 110 is quoted so many times. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This, unlike anything we saw in the Old Testament, here is a priest who is a king. And he sat down. He's a king. And his work is all complete. There is no, dear friends, no topping up to be done with this sacrifice. No little good works will top it up. No extra sacrifices will top it up complete. Done. All done. Finished. Meaning we can cry before the throne of God above. I have a strong, perfect plea. So, the ascension of Christ itself, before we even think about what he's like there, gives us such comfort. Because it means that, friends, the one in heaven now is the one who died for us. The lion on the throne looks like a lamb who'd been slain. Revelation 5. It means, dear brother, dear sister, the one who sits on the throne of the universe. He has spilled his blood for you. Do you think he could stop caring about you? 
bled and screamed and died for you. Do you think he could stop caring for you now? No. He means because we have this priest king sitting on the throne, we have the most passionate friend in heaven. All his heart stretched out to us. I said he sat down. Maybe I should say he normally sits because his work is complete, but, but there are times when he stands. Have you noticed that? Revelation 5, sees the lamb standing. Well, John Bunyan, the old author of Pilgrim's Progress, he said something about this. He was looking at Acts 7, when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was about to be stoned. Do you remember it? And you read in Acts 7 how Stephen, he's about to be stoned, and he looks up to heaven and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Bunyan says this, the sun, all conquering, does normally sit in heaven, his work complete. But there are times that he stands when his people are in great and sore troubles and the sufferings of his people so move him that he stands. And so Stephen is threatened and Jesus is on his feet crying, Father, see my brother. This is the one who's in heaven now. The one overflowing with compassion for us. The one who's bled for us. The one who knows what it is to suffer. Really, there is no trial you will face that Jesus has not faced. That Jesus does not understand. And I think when I say that, it's probably easy for you to think, really? Really? Does Jesus in heaven really know the mess I'm going through right now? Does he really know what it is to suffer the loss of family, dear ones, friends? Does he really know that? Yes. He wept at Lazarus too. Do you know what it is to be completely misunderstood, to have people lie about you, to be rejected? Yes. Spat on, despised, rejected. Do you know what it is to be in the most excruciating physical pain? Yes. On the cross. Do you know what it is, though, be harassed by dark thoughts. Do you know what it is to be tempted even to the brink of suicide? Yes. You heard the whisper, throw yourself from the temple rooftop. He's the one in heaven, there on the throne of heaven, so aloof. No. That's what you'd think, isn't it? Kings on thrones, they're aloof. No, the one in heaven is all compassion, empathy as well as sympathy, pouring with that heart prayers into the ear of his loving Father. Now, talk about having a priest it, it's odd for us as Protestants because as Protestants we talk about the priesthood of all believers right that there is no person on earth who stands as a mediator between us and God right and so we, we like the priesthood of all believers but it means that we can be sort of allergic to the idea of priests because priests I don't know what you think but certainly in England I think a priest sounds like Someone, you know, wearing drawing room curtains, smoking handbag. You know, it's just slightly not my kind of thing. 
And so what happens is I come to think, well, I don't like priests. And to, so you come to think, there's no priest, there's no mediator between me and God. I'm, I'm on my own. And even, even with language of forgiveness, you can feel I'm on my own, naked before God. No, that's not the gospel, dear friends. You do not stand on your own before God. We stand in Christ. The young believer, the old saint, the messed up believer, and the mature one, all of us, stand together in Christ. And we have the high priest who has done his work of atonement and on the basis of that blood, not on how we're performing, on the basis of that blood, he now prays for me with total assurance. What's he doing now? Praying for you. Can you get that? He's doing that now. He's praying for you. So when I'm faithless, he's still faithful. When I'm weak, he's still strong. And when I can't even pray, he is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Romans 8, 34. In fact, I'm going to give you a verse. Brush your teeth with this every day. <laughs> Hebrews 7, 25. Just make a note of this one. Hebrews 7, 25. He lives to make intercession for us. That's what he lives for now. So much does he love his people. Now, that's got to make a difference to you because don't you feel that when you fail, you just say, I can't come to God now. I'm just too messy. Well, sometimes it's not your failings as such but sometimes just the heartbreaks and the storms of life just leave you so smashed that you just don't have it in you to pray. So you feel, I'm too messy to pray. I, I just can't pray. But just that sort of time, we can say with poor suffering Job. Do you remember how Job said it? In the midst of all his sufferings, when he was cast down into the dust, he said, Job 16, even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God, on behalf of a man he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friend. That's what you can say when you're so smashed out you can't pray yourself. Even now he pleads as a man pleads for his friend. Having redeemed you with his blood, our compassionate high priest lives to intercede for us. That means wherever you're at, whatever you face, friend, you cannot be forgotten on the throne. And I'm going to press into this and ask, okay, let's get a firm grip on this. How exactly does Christ in heaven feel about you as you're struggling with your coldness? How does he feel about you when life is just so busy, you just feel he can't care about me? How does Jesus on the throne feel about you where you are actually at not the sorted person next to you but you right now how do you feel about you and I've never come across anyone who's dealt with this with the same genius as the Puritan Thomas Goodwin 
Thomas Goodwin, he's not very well known. His, to be honest, his writing ain't easy. You need to be able to speak Puritan to understand him. But he was a titan in his day. Uh, so he was a preacher in the 1600s. He was born about 1600. And in his early ministry in the 1620s, he had a ministry of, I quote, battering consciences. Want to go to his church? <laughs> that was his ministry. Then he had a meltdown. And for seven years, he was in a crisis. And for seven years, he was scratching around inside himself, looking for evidence that he was holy enough for God. And then at last, a pastor told him, Thomas, don't look in, look out to Christ. And rest on him alone. And he said with that he was free. But he began to see that this is how it is with so many Christians. He said, I quote, they have been too much carried away with the rudiments of Christ in their own hearts and not after Christ himself. Indeed, he said, the minds of many are so wholly taken up with their own hearts that Christ is scarce in all their thoughts. Know that? You're constantly scratching around inside yourself to go, how am I doing, how am I doing, how am I doing? And you're not able to look up to see the Savior, which is the liberation. And Goodwin developed the thought that people simply hadn't been taught enough about Christ, and so they didn't love him. And with all these idols vying for their attention, people were dreaming of a Christless, frightening God they couldn't turn to. Don't we do that? Don't, don't you do that? You, you find you sin. And the devil whispers, this is one too many. I wouldn't go back. And so you get into a sort of spiritual sulk. You think, I dare not go back now. I, I couldn't face his pure gaze. And to just such people, Goodwin preached Christ. To show them how different he is. To set forth Christ, to draw our gaze to him. And on this theme of Christ as our merciful high priest, he wrote his most famous work. If you're after a slightly more challenging read, I would recommend it. It's called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. And his aim was this. If you don't want the challenging bit, I'm just going to take you through the best bits now. <laughs> he said, my aim is to take our hands and lay them upon Christ's breast. And let us feel how his heart beats and his bowels yearn towards us. Even now he's in glory. The scope of these words being to encourage believers against all that may discourage them. From the consideration of Christ's heart now in heaven. In other words, he wants us to see through scripture. That for all Christ's heavenly majesty. As he's seated on the throne. He is not now aloof and unconcerned. You see, that's our natural hunch, isn't it? It's so easy to think, you know, once on earth, Jesus, he was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. But now, exalted to the throne of heaven, it's just too holy for me. Too exalted, like someone who's done well and forgets their friends. Right? And it's, it's so easy to think now he's on a throne. He can't be concerned about little me or messy me. No. Goodwin's point was no, he is the same man on the throne as walked with the disciples. And if anything, that heart of love his people beating in that human chest now that body is glorified his capacious heart if anything beats even more strongly with love for his people 
And knowing this, said Goodwin, may hearten, encourage believers to come more boldly to the throne of grace and to such a saviour and high priest when they know how sweetly, how tenderly his heart, though he's now in glory, is inclined towards them. That's what I want you to see now. Come with me to his first text. John 13. John 13. And this is Goodwin's argument raced through for how Christ in glory feels about you right now. Goodwin starts with John 13, the night before Jesus died. I'm just going to read the first four verses. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, that, that, that's the context. Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. That's the context. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, again, listen to this, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands and that he come from God, and knowing he was going back to God, now hear all that, because that's the context, knowing he's about to go back to God, he rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist and wash their feet. Why does he do it? Because he knows he's going back to God. In other words, knowing he was about to ascend to heaven in glory, what does he do? He washes their feet. They're not going to see him much more. And so he wants to make it clear, this is how I am towards you. Always. This is how I will be when I've gone to be with my Father. This is how I'll be towards you. I live to stoop and wash you. And he does this all for those he knows are going to betray him. So if you look at the end of the chapter, verse 38, he knows Peter is going to betray him. Now, he knows they're all going to run away. Now, he doesn't say, if you don't betray me, if you don't, then I'll pray for you, then I'll die for you. No, no. Knowing they'll betray him, he reassures them. Prays for them and dies for them. And even so does Jesus pray for us now. Even though we are daily unkind to him, so he is kind to us. And over the next few chapters in John's Gospel, Jesus tells them how he will be like a loving bridegroom going to prepare a place for his bride his people. Goodwin says this about the next few chapters in John. He says, it is as if Jesus had said, the truth is I cannot live without you. I shall never be quiet till I have you where I am, so that we may never part again. That is the reason of it. Heaven shall not hold me, nor my Father's company if I have not you with me. My heart is so set upon you. And if I have any glory, you shall have part of it, says Jesus. And then they betray him. As we do every day. They betray him. And he's killed. And what's his first reaction? He's raised from death. And what are the first words out of his mouth? What are the first words he uses of them? He appears and he calls them my brothers and says, peace be with you. 
for sinners, filled with the knowledge of our treachery, our guilt, we feel we will want to hide when Christ returns because we could never look into those eyes knowing what we've done. Look, friends, this is how Christ is to the very ones who sold him out directly. He says, my brothers, peace be with you. Have you ever heard of such love? In fact, Goodwin goes through all the resurrection appearances of Jesus. All the times that Jesus appears to those who betrayed him. And he notices this. He says, I quote, No sin of theirs troubled him but their unbelief. No sin of theirs troubled him but their unbelief. Because he's dealt with their sin on the cross. It's done. And he wants them to accept and enjoy the salvation he's brought them. And so the thing that really troubles him is they just can't believe it. Can you believe it? He was a failure. As a vile, repeat offender. Be not afraid. Your sins he will remember no more. It is done. And he lives to bless. And do you remember the last thing the disciples see as he ascends? The very last sight they have of Jesus? Remember it? What's he doing? What is their last sight of him? He's blessing them. It's the last thing they see. He wants us to know how he is towards us. And in particular, Goodwin argues there are two things. He argues this from scripture, I'll show you. He argues there are two things in particular that stir Christ's compassion. The first thing that stirs his heart for his people is our afflictions. They move him. His heart is moved by the pain and suffering of his people. Even though he knows that will make us more like him, he is moved. So that when, when Jesus meets Saul on the Damascus Road, remember? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because when you hurt my people, you're hurting me. He's the bridegroom. His people are his bride. Can't hurt her without him not feeling passionate compassion for her. She's his bride. He won't forget her. But the next thing that Christ feels compassion for is so wild, so strong. You're going to need this one argued out. So, let's go back to our start passage, Hebrews 4. So, Hebrews 4, uh, let's do verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, one who... In every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. But do you see the next word? For. Chapter 5, verse 1. For. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now get this. Have you ever noticed this in Hebrews 5.2? He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, you need to be clear on this. Jesus is like us in every way 
except sin. And one of the reasons the high priest was chosen from among weak people, that's one of his qualifications. He has to be weak flesh and blood. One of the reasons is so that he could deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, those who are out of the way, those who are sinning. In other words, a weak high priest understands it is part of the job of the high priest to see those who are wayward and have compassion on them. And so, Jesus does not just have compassion on us in our troubles. Brothers and sisters, he has compassion on us in our sin and failure. Says Goodwin, I quote, your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. Fear not, Christ is so far from being provoked against you, all his anger, for he hates sin, and he does have anger at sin, all his anger, says Goodwin, is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Praise him for that, I just want that to happen. His anger is turned upon our sin to ruin it, but his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father to a child that had some loathsome disease. His hatred shall all fall, and that all upon your sin, to free you from it by its ruin and destruction. But... His affections shall be the more drawn out to you. And this, when you lie under sin, as much as under any other affliction, therefore fear not what shall separate us from Christ's love. Isn't this a gospel you have to keep pinching yourself to believe it? Your very sins move him to pity. He's saying, sin is a sickness. Christians have been adopted into Christ as God's children. That is our new identity. And fathers don't hate their children when they get sick. They hate the sickness. Oh, they'll destroy the sickness if they can father who loves his children, you go, I will get rid of that sickness. But does the sickness make them hate their kids? Absolutely not. Quite the opposite. My girls are ill and I feel for them. I think I'll take that off you if I could. So it is with our Jesus. Brothers and sisters, our Jesus is so so kind. His first reaction when you sin is pity, compassion. When you sin, I mean, isn't it that when you sin, you want to hide from him, right? But when you sin, well, you want to run from him in guilt and in shame. When you sin, he wants to run to you to help. And that makes all the difference in coming back. Because if it was purely, there's no compassion, no pity, you're just going, you've sinned, I'm not with you until you sort yourself out and come back. It'd be so hard to turn and repent. But when you see this is how Christ is, when you sin, his heart is beating with compassion for you, longing for you to come back. Then you come running. I said, Jesus, what a fool I was. Oh, I'd rather be with you than with that sin. Such compassion wins us back. And 
while all the focus is on Christ's compassionate heart, don't think, lovely Christ, and he's interceding with his heartless father. No, no. In fact, the Spirit is working in the heart of Jesus, working the very heart of the Father. It is, when we see this compassionate heart of Christ in heaven, it is the express image, the exact imprint of the heart of the Father. That's what we're seeing. This is the heart of Christ, the heart of his Father. And what Goodwin realized as a pastor was this compassion is precisely what will win us back from spiritual coldness, precisely what will win us back from our sin, from sloping off with something dirty. Because in our guilt, we'd never want to face up to a cold and pitiless God. But the tender kindness of Christ woos us. The heart of Christ in heaven wins ours. And that was the case for Goodwin, who said on his deathbed, he said, Christ cannot love me better than he does. And I think now at last, I cannot love Christ better than I do. Do you know what? I, I think there is a particular lesson here for anyone who comes up front for anyone who ministers to God's people, for anyone who leads in any capacity, because the leader, our model leader, Jesus, his weakness as a man does not bar him from leading his people. It precisely qualifies him. Weakness qualifies him to be our merciful high priest. Read the last couple of verses of Hebrews 2 on that. Now down through the history of the church we see this is exactly how it is with God's servants. God uses weak people. Now the biographies can have a tendency to paint over the weaknesses of the heroes. And I don't know if you've ever felt this, that sometimes you can read a biography of some Christian hero and you're left feeling intimidated, thinking, well, I can see exactly why God used him, because he's awesome. <laughs> and I'm not. But if you probe, you find each one of them was weak, very weak in many ways. An example that always stands out to me is Martin Luther, who I have a particular affection for. Martin Luther, he's, he's known as this man who faces down the emperor, who declares, here I stand, and boldly reforms the church. You think, what a titan. <laughs> you know, I'm just not like that. But though he preached such a gospel, and he did seem such a titan, Luther often cried himself to sleep. Uh, he was, after a number of years, he was overwhelmed by all that he faced. Um, there were assassination attempts. There was a death sentence hanging over him all his life. He'd be burned to death if he was caught by the wrong people. And then there's the whole weight of opposition, the whole weight of reforming the church. And the Reformation hadn't been going for a few years before Luther was a physical wreck. And he was wearied by work and oppression and nagging doubts. And perhaps his greatest weakness was the biggest debt and the most surprising one. Fifteen years after the Reformation had got going, Luther was at a small dinner party with some friends. And with these close friends, he confessed, my greatest temptation is this. I sometimes think I don't have a gracious God. Can you believe Luther said that? The rediscoverer of salvation by grace alone. Sometimes I think I don't have a gracious God. And I'm so grateful for him saying that because 
that's my greatest struggle too. And I thank God for it because God used that weakness in Luther precisely to be his greatest strength. Because he struggled to accept God's outrageous grace, it made Luther an unparalleled preacher of the gospel of grace. This is how God works, dear friends. He loves to take the weakest point of your character, that thing that is so naturally ugly, so weak, so fragile. He loves to take precisely there and make that the greatest point of beauty in your character. I'm going to share this briefly with you. I was talking with um, someone earlier today about a man I worked with who was a great hero of mine. His name is John Stott. And I knew him for a number of years. I worked with him. And I learned many things from him. But the thing that is the outstanding takeaway from my time with him is he was a man in private exactly the same as he was in public. A man of absolute integrity. And that integrity was a man of a humility I've never come across. I didn't think anywhere else. And what's striking is this. As a young man, John Stott was a very privileged, very talented young man from the upper classes in England. That means something. It goes to your head quickly in England. Highly talented, highly privileged, elite in every way. Pride and ambition for himself were the greatest struggles for him. And the Lord used precisely that to make it the greatest mark of gospel beauty in his character. A thing I'll perhaps most remember him for. A humble man in private. God's leaders, servants, are always weak people. And I'm going to dare a theory here. It's always the heralds of the light who find themselves normally most surrounded by the darkness. And why? Because if you look at chapter 2, verse 16, who is it that he helps? It's not angels that he helps, but weak people, children of flesh. And helping children of the flesh, he had to become like them. You see, have you ever wondered why God didn't appoint angels to preach the gospel? Because that would sort out the bad theology problem, wouldn't it? <laughs> right? Bye-bye liberal theology, we're just getting it direct. That would be a pretty good idea. I think if I were running a show, I'd do that. Just get angels to do it. But he doesn't. Because... Angels couldn't have the same sympathy with sinners. Our weakness, our frailty, means we can be like Christ. Compassionate. Able to help those who are weak and being tempted. And friends, I find that such liberation in ministering to Christ's people. Because you must feel it. In any kind of ministry to God's people, you feel the tension, this sharp inconsistency between the gospel you're proclaiming and the state of your own heart, right? And if you have any self-awareness, basically every time you're particularly standing in public, you're thinking, has God got the wrong guy here? If only they knew. Who am I? And that can make you run. It can make you try to take refuge outside the gospel. And it can harden you because that's just too tough to deal with. No. Weakness is a qualification. And I think particularly for worship leaders. Let's flip this round. Particularly for people who are up front. 
so perfect, so apparently sorted. And you don't want people to see your weakness. And one of two things can happen then. Your ministry starts being merciless. Because you want to appear wise and strong. And what that can do is you won't tolerate fools and weaknesses. They waste your precious time. And you become a hard-hearted superhero. The opposite of Christ. And with such a slick and perfect ministry, people get battered down under your pitiless, relentless brilliance. And you can think, look, I'm pretty good. I'm a big deal. And if I can do so well, so can my people. Why aren't they doing better? Because they're fools. Unlike me. I'm a big deal. And you think, why can't they shake off their sin? I'm doing well, why aren't they? And you can begin to despise the weak. And it all comes out of not being prepared to admit you're weak. Not thinking that the gospel is a gospel precisely for the weak. You, you're into a mindset where no one needs grace. No one needs a compassionate saviour. And so you're trying to look all sorted. You want everyone else to look all sorted. People need to see that you need grace. That you're dependent. And the more you get that, the more compassionate you will be. The more like our merciful high who, remember, he's moved to pity when you stumble. Friends, wherever you're at, if you're feeling spiritually cold, if you're feeling you've put on a mask of brilliance for a long time, and this, there's this rot of hypocrisy inside that you've hidden away from Christ for a long time, if you just feel messy, tired for all of you for all of us Christ doesn't look at you in that state and think that's it that very struggle that very coldness of heart that very pride that very sin doesn't turn him away from his own right now that very problem that you can possibly hardly even dare to admit to yourself, that problem, the ones you don't want to confess, that most embarrassing of problems, that basic coldness, it is that that fills him with compassion now and filled with compassion for the people he bled for. Right now, he pours out heartfelt prayers into the ears of his loving Father, who has the same heart. All powerful, all compassionate. Brothers and sisters, at all times we have this friend in heaven, moved, moved by your afflictions, moved to pity and compassion by your sin. He loves you and he feels for you with glorious power and glorious pity. His ears are always open to his beloved, open to the weak, open to the wayward. He has suffered and he has bled for you. He's died for you and he's not changed. On the throne of heaven, those scars can be seen. Nothing could stop his heart going out for you where you're at right now. And does that not make your prayers, your heart go out to him? Our marvelous, victorious, merciful high priest. Let's pray to him now.
We can hardly believe that you would have compassion on us in our forgetfulness, our coldness, our sinfulness. But that you, in your glory in heaven, would be moved with pity for us. Us rebels who betray you moves us to return to you. I pray, would, would your heart cause ours to return to you day after day? Make us love you the more. I pray then that your heart might melt ours each day as we enjoy the fact that Lord Jesus lives to intercede for us. And we pray these things with such gratitude, such praise, all glory